0: This just in, Phanthropological is now available for those of you out there who possess the mind gift. Today, we're talking about fans of the Vampire Chronicles. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Phanthropological I'm Nick G, and thank you for joining us uh, on another episode. Thank you for listening and uh, watching, if you're doing that, on, uh, on twitch.tv slash the Nick's cast. But anyway, today we are here to talk about Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles, and here with me to do that are my two best friends, Nick T. I'm
1: really looking forward to talking about two guys, a girl, and a Louisiana mansion. And Nick Z. I'm really crossing my fingers that
2: uh, Anne Rice won't sick her, her lawyers on me for writing some Anne Rice fan fiction.
0: And uh special guest joining us today, we have freelance writer and editor Varai, Rye, thank you for joining us today.
3: Hello, uh, I think that you are all interrogating this podcast from the wrong perspective.
1: Well, I guess my chance to bring that up later. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Don't worry, there's more, there's a lot more, there's always more. <laughs>
1: Without tipping my hand too much, I, <laughs> I learned a lot more about Anne Rice than I did the Vampire Chronicles, I think.
3: Yeah, I feel like, I feel like that happens, and that's kind of a shame, so I, I'm going to try my best to explain why I like these terrible books written by a terrible person.
1: I'm on board with that. Ooh. <laughs> to get things started, in case you have no idea what the Vampire Chronicles is, are, uh, etc., I've got a little bit to get us started, and I this time I really do mean a little bit. The Vampire Chronicles is a series of novels by American writer Anne Rice uh, that revolves around the fictional character Lestat de Lioncourt, a French nobleman turned into a vampire in the 18th century. The book series encompasses 13 separate novels from 1976 to 2018 and has been adapted into a few films, uh, notably Interview with the Vampire, which was released in 1984, starring Tom Cruise, Brad Pitt, Antonio Banderas, Christian Slater, and Kirsten Dunst, uh, and Queen of the Damned in 2002. Uh and as of July twenty eighteen, it was announced that a TV series adaptation of the novels is in development by Hulu.
3: Allegedly.
1: <laughs> Ooh. How how is this different from, from other streaming services making announcements in the alleged department?
3: Well, just in terms of like I can I have been following the the production of this of this alleged product in that it was originally announced as a film, I think in 2016, that God forbid was going to involve Jared Leto as Lestat. Uh, and then. Oh, wow. That went silent for a long time. And then all of a sudden, it was definitely going to be a TV series for sure, for reals. And it was going to involve Brian Fuller, which was literally everything I've ever wanted because (laughs) Hannibal is definitely the closest Uh, anything has ever come to capturing the mood of the Vampire Chronicles books, and I am including the film adaptations. And then, despite the fact that he had made this really, he he told this really cute story on a podcast about how he was a teenage fan of Anne Rice, and he, like, went to her house to say, someday I'm going to adapt your books. So he signs on to the project. And then two months later, he's not on the project anymore, but they waited six months to tell us this. And um, now, allegedly, it's definitely going to be on Hulu for realsy Reels, and Anne Rice is hard to work with, is what I'm saying.
2: Isn't her son Christopher doing the script or something like that?
3: In theory, yes.
1: That does clear up one mystery that I had, because I looked at the search data, and unsurprisingly for a lot of fandoms that we covered, unless it's something that's happening right now, interest in the fandom, uh, interest in the thing, is on the decline. It's been on the slow decline since 2004. The book series has been going on since 1976, so there's lots of data that we don't have. And Google Trends is just a small slice of data. The series enjoyed a small lift in interest around November of 2009, which I could find no explanation for. Uh,
3: there, oh, there was a comic. Oh, OK. Uh, called Claudia's Story.
1: OK, well, that clarifies that, which lasted for several years until July 2018, where interest spikes again, which is the announcement from Hulu. This part surprised me a little bit, which was looking at the countries that look, at search, for the Vampire Chronicles. For some reason, Interview with a Vampire had a lot more data than Vampire Chronicles. Both of them have similar lists that are slightly different. The Vampire Chronicles, the top 10 countries are Spain, Romania, Hungary, Mexico, Chile, the Philippines, Uruguay, United States, Poland, and Venezuela. And Interview with the Vampire was Mexico, Russia, Moldova, Belarus ukraine hungary poland chile china and latvia i don't know why there's so many like european countries in that bunch
3: there's a really sizable spanish-speaking um fandom for the series i think actually and i kind of wonder if that's because Anne can't read their stuff to send season (laughs) six letters
1: (laughs) Uh... we've talked about some fandoms just dying of natural causes but this is one of the few occasions where we're talking (laughs) one that's actively being killed off
2: i mean in a sense but like wasn't there a lot of um sort of secret exchanges of fan fiction going on and whatnot to sort of get around that
3: oh yeah it's a whole it's a whole thing i actually came into the fandom after the initial nuclear bomb of cease and desist went off which was when uh, you know fans had been trading things about on Angel Fire and Geo Cities and whatnot. And then in 2000, uh, Anne put up an official statement on her website that was like, you know, I don't support fan fiction. These are copyrighted characters. And then she started sending cease and desist letters uh, to some of the major writers in the fandom, including a couple that went to people's jobs and implicated their jobs or private companies in the threats. So... People went into lockdown and started taking things down and hiding it because there was a very real legal threat. So I read the books when I was about 13. I think it was early 2004. So by the time I kind of got into the fandom, everything was already underground and was kind of hard to find. My wife... Dorothy, actually, she, she took an oath. The, she she re- remembers taking an oath for the secret fanfiction archive that exists and is still around. And to this day, she will not tell people the password. It was very serious because you could be putting people in harm's way. It was always a very jumpy, paranoid fandom. And as a result, actually, um, what I got involved in when I was around 14 wasn't writing fanfic, but, but uh, roleplay. Roleplay was very popular because you can't sue that.
2: Yeah, but <laughs> I was I was actually kind of wondering that because there's this clamp down on the, on the fanfic. Do you think that role playing sort of played a larger role in the fandom? It, it
3: definitely did. It's it's still actually how the um the the predominant means of transformative fandom that I've seen uh, even to this day, although and no longer you know takes active means in in terrorizing people with legal threats, but it it's still very much set up in this thing where. Where yeah, um, doing character blogs on Tumblr is very very popular still. You know, for my part, I definitely I, I definitely took part in that. And then you know, around that time, I also at a certain point reached an anxious pitch state where uh, I thought that maybe you know the people I was talking to online might might be 40-year-old men or otherwise out Mm. to report me to Anne Rice, who might tell my parents, who might know that I was reading gay shit. And then I quit the internet for six months and had my first panic attack. Oh, wow. It was a very, very tense, uh, anxiety-inducing phantom. And as far as the, the fanfic that does exist, it's really interesting to me in that... Like, most fandom, you know, there's that first wave of fic right after the thing happens, and it hits all the basic tropes. You know, you got yourself inserts and the the five popular, well, what if this had happened instead, and also, like, the, the PWP fic. And then after that, there's a second wave of fanfic that builds on that and is the more interesting, kind of nuanced, in-depth stuff. And that never happens with VC, because the fic is constantly lost or hidden. It's always rebuilding that first layer. So, there are some good fanfics, but... It it doesn't have the intercommunication of fandom that you get with, with bigger ones.
1: That was something that I found really fascinating because it was one of the few instances where I've ever seen something explicitly say, there are no fanfics on fanfiction.net. Mm-hmm. It all got purged. Yeah, I, and that was part of the history of it. But then also that there was any fanfiction on Archive of Our Own because I know that Archive of Our Own works uh, to protect the, the rights of fanworks. But I was still surprised that there was any work at all, given the whole situation with Anne Rice protecting her copyright. I was, I was just surprised that there, anything was there that it wouldn't have just, people just gave up or gone to the <laughs> secret repository of knowledge. <laughs> um,
3: th- there are still a lot of people, uh, like a lot of general sentiment that's like, it's it's not worth it. Like, it is not worth it to do it with this old problematic text where the author is a vulturous asshole. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Fair. Man.
3: <laughs> Which kind of bumps me out, because, like, this series is made for fan fiction.
2: It sounds like it is. That's sort of the impression
3: that I get. Not just for the reason you're thinking.
1: I <laughs> know. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I'd, I'd wondered, getting into the last episode and the last, last episode's famous last words, was I was like, okay, so there's the Vampire Chronicles came out in the 1970s, you know, how much was the Vampire Chronicles responsible for... This vampire craze of the, I don't know, 2000s, whatever, et et cetera.
3: So much. Uh, Honestly, these, uh, the Vampire Chronicles are probably one of the most influential texts uh, for vampire fiction outside of Stoker.
0: Wow. Right.
3: Um, Because, I mean, um, Anne doesn't invent the, you know, vampire's connection with sexuality or even vampires as like... Uh, coded queer element that was actually Carmilla which is a couple decades before Dracula uh, but she invents quite a few things that became you know taken as standard in follow, in later decades like uh having vampire you, you know making vampires by doing a deliberate transference of blood rather than just having you know victims die and then rise from the grave as vampires that was Anne Rice uh, she invents the adult vampire trapped in a child's body um, with Claudia that's probably the if not the first then definitely the codified version of that trope she um this this isn't as popular but uh the the association of vampire mythos with egypt isn't technically she cribbed that from uh whitley Strieber's the hunger but the hunger cribs from the tone of interview with the vampire like a lot so it's kind of this intermingling thing it, it also is the first shift from the protagonist being the the victim who's being stalked by the vampire to the vampire themselves being the perspective character which is ha- which is kind of how you draw a line to the sad sexy vampire with twilight <laughs> and yep. it um and as a corresponding like result Instead of the fear being, like, fear of the outside or the other and contamination, it's the fear of immortality and, like, existential dread becomes, like, a central focus. And Catholicism, because Anne Rice.
1: (laughs) Is she or isn't she? Can't escape that cross.
3: Uh, The the mere history of Anne's cradle Catholicism and its effect on these books is its whole own thing.
1: I I didn't know that was a thing until um, Greg, who was on our last podcast about One Piece... He'd meant he were like, what are your famous last words? And he says, is Anne Rice a Christian again or isn't she? And, and I'm just like, <laughs> is this a thing? Because <laughs> I, I know nothing about Anne Rice's history.
3: Yeah. Like her interview with the vampire is partially written as like a coping mechanism for her to deal with the death of her young daughter, uh, which is kind of how Claudia comes into existence. But it's also her disillusionment with the Catholic Church. So the main character, Louis, is dealing with this fact that he's going to live forever. And does that mean he's damned? And is he a good person? And what is the point of existing if there's no greater purpose to it? And it's a whole thing. that That's kind of an undercurrent of most of the books. And then in the 90s, she finds Jesus again. And that's that's the book where, where uh, Lestat meets the devil and goes back in time to drink the literal blood of literal Christ. And then she forswears her vampire books for a while and writes Jesus fanfics. And then those don't sell so well. Um, (laughs) So coincidentally, she comes back to writing vampires. This is also where you get a lot of confusion with uh, how incredibly gay these books are, because while she was back on really into the, uh, Uh, into christianity she would get super mad at you if you implied that these books might be kind of gay even though they're really gay
0: (laughs) really
1: (laughs) that just does i mean maybe this is when the quote happened but like i have a quote here it's like on the homoerotic content of my novels i can only say that i have said many times that no form of love between consenting individuals appears wrong to me and and that it continues to go on basically in support so I I'm guessing that must have been mm-hmm. at some point after she changed her mind about things.
3: Yeah, probably. It uh, her big what no, this is totally not gay at all. Uh was like largely in the 2000s, the um early to mid 2000s if I remember correctly. I will say that if you want to talk about the downside to that very nice sounding statement, uh, I could bring up the voicemail where she talks at length about Ooh. isn't it sad how this con- convicted pedophile is remembered as a convicted pedophile because he he added so much to the world of art? And are we <sighs> really sure that those victims were victims? Some of them didn't feel bad about it.
1: <sighs> that is way too real for the present. Like Yeah. I you could you could tell me that that happened yesterday and be like yeah that's that's like today but that probably happened a a long time ago
3: that was uh well it was from a voice it, it, it was a voice message mail because in the 90s she had this thing set up where fans could call into this phone line and get a message from her um so it was a message from august 1st 1997 when she was writing the vampire Armand. not so coincidentally but yeah i don't know her feelings on woody allen but i feel like i have a guess yeah Sorry, I brought the room down. Mm,
2: that's seems like it's just what happens when you're talking about Anne Rice.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's that's I, I I feel like these books need content warnings. The discussion of these books needs content warnings. You know, there's there's sexualization of children and there's sexual assault and there's misogyny and uh, there's horrible violent gore. Uh, anyway, I, I love the first three books very much.
1: <laughs> that was literally the next thing I was going to ask. It's like okay, so. As you mentioned, uh, I'm mm-hmm. trying to remember your exact words. It's like mm-hmm. asshole books by an asshole author. No, that's not right. <laughs> but, but you but you love them. And there must be some reason that you and many other people love those books. And it can't just be, well, I read them when I was 13.
3: No, no, because have, I've definitely come back and I've reread them. I have reread the trilogy. Um, because the first three books, what we call the editor times... what I call the editor times, um, form kind of a a, a cohesive narrative, and you can reach the end of Queen of the Damned and stop, and it's fine. And then from the the next books on, um, that was when she was rich enough and selling well enough that she was able to say, I don't want to work with an editor anymore, and all of my first drafts are perfect. And the publishing house said, well, you're making us a lot of money, so... Yeah, sure. And it was a widely regarded as a bad decision by all.
0: In case it's not clear. We're very pro editor on this podcast yeah. as, on, the, on the whole.
3: Yeah. As as a professional writer and editor, I promise you need editors.
0: <laughs> Thanks. Z. We'll, we'll, we'll back you up. Yeah.
3: Genuinely, the first three books are not without problems. It's more like there are two and a half good books, and you need the third one to finish up the story, and also there's some really good bits in it. Um, but the first couple are these genuinely moving depictions of mental illness, and they were also, especially if you grew up, you know, in the 90s when I did, it was one of the few mass market genre fiction um, novels that you could get that had openly queer characters in it. Uh, that wasn't like boring literary fiction where the gays die at the end, because the entire course of that trilogy is about uh, Louis and Lestat have a have a have a horrible marriage and they break up and then they they get back together again. It's this incredible messy soap opera. By the way, you broke my heart when you depict when you described this as the story of Lestat.
1: <laughs> I that that's a quote from Wikipedia.
3: That's fair. No, it's it's fair because Anne Rice would very much like this to be the story of Lestat because Louis kind of represents the time in her life when she was at her lowest, I think, and was just incredibly depressed, which which fair enough. But then you kept writing these books instead of moving on to new books, and you have to deal with this foundational character of your mythos. But so, yeah, like Louis's search for meaning in the face of immortality really strikes a core with myself and the people I know who've read it, who've struggled with very, very deep depression. Um It's incredibly raw. And it's also kind of inspiring in that he has this, he is this character who has gone through horrible things, um, has lived through terrible abuse and death and, you know, monstrous sights, and continues to reach out and love people. And uh, the same, you know, the vampire Lestat, I think had one of the most, moving and oh my god that's me moments of of a description of an anxiety anxiety attack that i've ever seen which was apparently inspired by Anne having a bad trip but you know whatever
2: but she hates drugs it was her husband stan who did all the drugs
3: yeah it's also it's also weird because like these books have a lot of really interesting representation totally on accident
2: interesting
3: yeah like so like listat's mother gabrielle right is um she becomes a vampire not long after him, and she is this character who, as soon as she dies, she kills a guy on the street, takes his clothes, cuts off all her hair, and then has a freak out when she realizes that because she's a vampire, she looks how she did when she died forever, so she can't cut her hair, and it's always going to look long and feminine. And I'm oh. like, And Rice, you made a transmasculine character on accident. Holy crap. And then you screwed it up in every, you you screwed it up in every other book by being like, yep, she's a woman. She's totally a woman who wears pearls and dresses. And I'm like, wow, well, I'm going to ignore all of those. Thank you. (laughs) Characters like Armand, um, Armand very much reads as, as on the spectrum, at, at least to me and some people I know, because like he's this character who's, uh, very, very set into, um, he has patterns and scripts for everything. Uh, when he meets, when he meets, uh, his, Horribly dysfunctional boyfriend Daniel. There's this period of them having this relationship in the 1980s where Daniel comes home and and Armand has found a new obsession where like he's 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 bought a bunch of TVs and he's taking them apart or he's mixing things in blenders to see what will happen or he films himself for eight hours a day to see what happens if he cuts his hair and it grows back in real time. And I'm like, yeah. it's it like a bunch of stuff like that just totally by accident where it's like, oh. Yes, this is a thing people should write fan fiction about because there's so much great stuff in here that she did not mean to do, I don't think. Mm-hmm. The structure of the first three books themselves are like this amazing meta textual thing where Interview with the Vampire is Louis telling his story to a reporter in a room. So it's all told, you know, secondhand. Then The Vampire Lestat comes out nine years later. And Interview with the Vampire exists in the world of the Vampire Lestat. And basically, Lestat gets out of the grave because he heard his ex wrote a burn book about him. It's like, no, no, no. (laughs) Excuse me. So he writes this other book that also gets published in universe, which is both excuse you, I'm actually awesome, but is also this kind of sweet. Look, I know I screwed up our marriage and was horribly controlling because I didn't tell you these things about myself and. Well, here is my attempt to make good. Here is everything about my life and all the things that I know about vampirism. and also, by the way, I'm a rock star now, and I am here to tear down the the hegemony of like the these incredibly toxic uh codependent vampires fledgling relationships. And then the third book kind of fucks it up uh by by being like, you know how we we were talking about how you know these are a cool book about. Uh, rebellious, marginalized people tearing down the system that is mm-hmm. gate-kept by uh, an old white pedophile. Uh, and actually, we're going to share all of the secrets now. And then at the end of the book, they decide, actually, the villain of this book was the uh, woman of color who's really angry and a misandrist. And what we need to do is take her out and keep the system and put it in the hands of this nice white lady. Um, and we fixed everything. Yay! Oh, wow. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, these books have problems.
0: <laughs> I think I did watch Queen of the Damned, but it was definitely like twelve years ago, and it was definitely at three in the morning.
3: Oh, I hate that movie.
0: I remember Aaliyah as as the queen walking into a bar, and that's it. That's my entire memory of that movie. But apparently, apparently they put they put some of some of the vampire stat in there as well. Like, is there any any idea why there wasn't? Just a movie of the Vampire Lestat because that was the next one after Interview with a Vampire.
3: Well, it's because Vampire Lestat doesn't have a beginning or an ending. Um, oh, I see. Because like it opens as a response to Interview being published, and it closes with a cliffhanger that leads into Queen of the Damned, and then in between is all just Lestat's backstory. And but the so some of Lestat's backstory makes it into Queen of the Damned. Queen of the Damned is a horrible movie, except for Aaliyah, because of the aggressive straight washing. I hate it. Oh,
1: um,
3: yeah! Like uh, Nikki's first, or uh, uh, Lestat's first love, Nicholas, is turned into a random woman with who gives him a violin, and that's really important to him from this woman he met one time. Um, and Louis is completely written out, even though them getting back together was kind of the dramatic thrust of that trilogy. Mm-hmm. And then the capable adult woman paranormal investigator Jesse from the books is rewritten into like a 20-year-old ingenue to be Lestat's love interest. It's terrible. And also Korn does the soundtrack and not <gasps> Savage Garden, the Vampire Chronicles what? film band.
2: How, Korn did the soundtrack?
3: Oh, it's bad. What? Yeah. Ugh. Despite the fact that Lestat would clearly be the glammest of rockers.
0: Oh, yeah. Any vampire would
2: have to be, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Need to hear more about Savage Garden being the vampire. chronicles <laughs>
3: um, it. I guess it.
0: If, if you have any more explanation I, for that, it, or.
3: it is. Um, there's. Uh, well, the 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 name is a uh, is a reference to a quote where listot refers to the world that vampires roam as like the Savage Garden, you know, of earthly delights and all that stuff, all and there are. Right. A, There are a couple of their songs that read very much as, like, thinly veiled character pieces, especially one of, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's this one about a character, you know, calling all over the world because he can be anyone he wants to be, which is a thing that Armand does in Queen of the Damned because he's the tragic, eternally 17-year-old vampire who has enough backstory for three characters, and I love him.
0: (laughs) I need to re-examine my relationship with Savage Garden, I think, and not know that about them. <laughs> you,
3: you, you can see why they would want to be kind of on the down low about, about mm-hmm. being connected. And, and, yet, and yet, Anne never sued White Wolf.
1: White, White Wolf? The role-playing gaming system, because earlier in this podcast, I was going to bring it up and then forgot about it because it, I, I couldn't see any connection. But I, I was going to bring it up when we were talking about the. 2000 era and rice like no don't take any of my my work it's it's like it's mine no one else can write my list at yeah white wolf publishes a role-playing system called vampire the masquerade which takes all the different tropes of vampires whether they be like nosferatu or like i honest or carmelia or like the seven or eight other factions of vampires that exist with their own different archetypes which I, I, I don't, you mentioned role-playing earlier, and I wasn't sure if that's, that's just general, like, fic role-play, or if that was, like, Vampire the Masquerade role-playing.
3: No, no, it, well, in, in the case of what I've seen, it was, it's just, like, we're gonna pretend to be these characters and, and act out, you know, RP scenarios back and forth, not within the constraints of, of an existing game. But, is you know, speaking of Vampire of the Masquerade, the Toreadors just are and Rice vampires, and she had boo to say about that. But then again, she also came out in support of E.L. James, a woman who published a novel that had 90% fidelity to a Twilight fanfic, so she might be slightly hypocritical.
2: It's just interesting how, I mean, her opinions change, but like I can't think of another sort of like big literary figure whose opinions have changed so much.
3: I mean, I, I definitely think it's influenced by the fact that she has been writing these characters for almost 50 years, which again i don't think is a good thing for authors to do because ideally you're growing as an artist and a person and eventually you just won't be able to connect to those characters anymore because you're a different person than you were then which is fine but then you write new characters for the new you that you are
0: you gotta let him go at some point Mm -hmm. do you think she gets like frustrated at the fact that that there are people seeing things in what she writes that she doesn't see herself
3: is that is that your gateway into talking about interrogating the text from the wrong perspective? Because it's a thing.
1: Yeah, let's let's dive into that because one of the things that came up when I was doing the research was not only all this this weird stuff about Anne Rice as a person, but also Anne Rice's relationship with people's opinions of Anne Rice and her work. <laughs> like, I think you'd actually sent me an article or um, or a phone log or something to that effect right, of mm. effectively Anne Rice saying, oh, did you know that Amazon.com also has book reviews? I didn't, mm-hmm. and I learned a lot about what people think about my books. <laughs>
2: 2004, such an innocent time.
3: <laughs> yes, yes. That review isn't there anymore, uh, by the way, but thank, thank God that Fan Lore preserved yeah. it because, mm, mm.
2: It's good reading. hmm Who needs paragraphs?
3: What are paragraph breaks? (laughs) They're for cowards, is what I'll tell you. (laughs) Yeah, in 2004, Anne Rice went on to Amazon into the reviews for Blood Canticle and got in an argument with somebody who gave her book a bad review, saying that they (laughs) interrogated it from the wrong perspective, a.k.a. they didn't read it right. (laughs) Which is extra funny to me because Blood Canticle already opens... Uh, with Lestat berating the reader for not liking them, the devil.
0: <laughs> yeah. What, really?
3: Yeah. These books have this very insidious power, I think, over young readers in that they're in first person and ostensibly being written by the characters to a readership who's in the know. So there's like this desire to uh, please the character, which is the author, because there is this total one to one list is and self insert basically so so occasionally it'll pull these things like i can't believe you did like shaming the reader basically for for engaging critically with the text and uh it's upsetting
2: it's it's interesting that you put it that way though that it's like particularly insidious with uh with younger readers like with teen readers because going through some amazon reviews of just interview with the vampire and um collection of the vampire chronicles i think i I think the trilogy just the the trilogy Mm -hmm. um a lot of the reviews that were glowing were positive started off with something like um i I first read this when i was you know in my teens and it answered all these questions i had about like birth and death and life and all this sorts, all these sorts of existential concerns that i had but didn't really want to ask anybody about because it's how teens are and, like, ever since then, I've reread it, you know, however many times, and I can't wait to reread this copy that I just bought. So,
3: yeah. It's curious. Yeah, I, I think the. I mean, they're very purple gothic fiction, um, <laughs> which, on the one hand, means that they are hilarious, but also <laughs> it's this very um, lush prose that kind of invites you to sink into it and inhabit these these thought pot patterns. It's like, it, it's a sense experience as much as, um, like I don't know if you've seen Interview with the Vampire the movie. I like it. It's campy as hell, but it doesn't necessarily capture the experience of reading the book, particularly I mean, most of that is Brad Pitt's fault and Neil Jordan's terror of queer themes even though he keeps making queer movies Um <laughs> But, but yeah, like for teenagers, I think the Vampire Chronicles are a uh, it's classier than reading porn. You can think that you're <laughs> you're a very uh, sophisticated person who's reading this thing that definitely technically doesn't have any fucking, even though <laughs> even though everything vampires do is sex, basically. Um, but also it's it's like I mentioned before, this very raw thing <laughs> uh, where where because that prose is so descriptive it invites you to, like, sink in and and say, aha, I have had that moment, even if it's in the throes of, like, oh, all of this is... This is, you know, dead people and also wealth porn. (laughs) So much wealth porn.
2: I remember I didn't... Like, there weren't very many interesting answers, but on Quora there was a question to the effect of, um, why do the vampires in Ed Rice's books have infinite money?
3: Because it's wealth porn. I guess. And and also be... (laughs) Like do you want the serious answer or the <laughs> metatextual answer I have
0: well, both. well, the second they became vampires, they put they put 1 penny in a savings account. <laughs> <laughs> and over time. Actually. <laughs> is this is this the part where I learned that this is
1: this that uh, Anne Rice is just secretly cribbing notes from um Ayn Rand and this is all like Atlas Shrugged? Is that where this is going?
3: I mean, the later books mm-hmm. do de- like especially depressing because you know I mentioned those first couple books have this undercurrent of of rebellion, it is depressing that the more recent books are all very, let's recreate a monarchy and the poor, va- and, and all these poor non-white people are kind of cramping our style. And, um, you know, this, this is really just beautiful, rich white Europeans having a good time and preserving what they think is the best form of art and culture. I'm like, Oh, oh, oh my, these have taken a turn. Um, yeah, but like, in terms of, why in the older books it's partially it's because this is a this is a wealth porn fantasy but it's also technically like the characters invested um or some of them came from money like louis was a plantation owner uh which the book very uh whitely takes a moment to be like i know that was wrong now which is better than the subsequent books too <laughs>
1: oh
3: oh my god the problems with race in this book oh.
2: Uh, given that you know these books are weirdly, or at least the original trilogy, um, and even the later ones, maybe, uh, are weirdly problematic, but also kind of diverse, do you think that they still have the same sort of enchanting effect over younger readers today?
3: I'm genuinely not sure. Um, for me, a lot of what's both interesting and frustrating is stuff like, like I don't think a younger would... Reader would pick up the fact that there is this completely absurd prologue to the Vampire Lestat, where um, where Lestat wakes up in the eighties and he's like, "Wow, mm. everything is great, um, <laughs> and uh, and women are interesting now because they wear pants, uh, mm. and, and I'm over here uh, as a person who." enjoys studying 80s queer media, like, so you're telling me that Lestat is a queer man who drinks blood and can read minds and is hanging out with the outcasts of society and uh, he doesn't have boo to say about AIDS? Hmm, yeah. that's interesting. It is indeed morning in America,
1: Anne.
3: Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, 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 young people are getting into these books. I see young f- readers, but... I think it doesn't maybe have the same intrinsic pull that it had for when I was a teenager, because there is a lot, you know, Steven Universe exists now, and it did not when I was 13. I mean, the fact that these are, you know, gruesome, gory horror books, at least early on, is certainly still somewhat unique. Uh, Hannibal can only address so many people. <laughs> uh, again, that's the closest analog I can think in visual media. These Reading these books is like watching Hannibal they really are good at being horror is the thing like it that goes away as time goes on, but there is some truly beautiful grotesque imagery that, that I kind of envy.
1: Like grotesque in the, in the sense of like horror in a visceral sense or horror, horror in a like mental kind of dealing with, with immortality kind of sense.
3: Uh, I mean both. Um, like I mentioned that whole accident, um, you accidentally done made a trans character um the moment when the the moment when uh gabrielle realizes that oh no i have died and now my body is going to look like this forever i thought i had control over my life but this one thing is going to be immutable forever um is really appealing and then you know at the same mind there's this a little bit you know, um, Lestat is sexually assaulted, basically, into becoming a vampire in a really upsetting scene. <laughs> and and then he goes downstairs and he discovers, like, this room full of corpses of men who all look progressively like him. Um, just slowly rotting in a way that he never will and, like, coming to, like, deliberately avoiding coming to terms with the fact that he is going to live forever and be a super strong magical vampire because some some dude who was stronger than him liked the way he looked. Oof. Like there are genuinely potent moments.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Although it's weird that like there are moments that the books expect you to take at face value. That that reading them critically um, because you know the books sort of invite that. Well, this is being made in universe for an audience reading. That is like, like the book Lestat's autobiography in universe opens with, I killed eight wolves and my abusive family was forced to tell, was forced to recognize how incredibly awesome I am. And that's how I (laughs) met my super douchey hipster boyfriend. And we went to Paris and it was awesome. And I'm over here like, this is in no way a way for you to, to change and control the narrative about how you were killed because you looked handsome and you had no control over that. Cool. Why don't. God, I wish people were not afraid to write fanfic about this series.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say earlier mm-hmm. about how it's like, like author versus fandom, but in in fandom, other kind of like like a loyalist faction and like a. Mm -hmm. Uh, There should be fanfic kind of faction.
3: Yes. Yes. Um, Anne's Facebook group is very scary. Don't go there. And please don't tell her about this fan uh, uh, about this podcast. I am legitimately afraid of her most loyal fans. Uh, One time Jenny Trout wrote a critic. I don't even think she reviewed one of Anne's books. She like wrote a critical review of something and some and and somebody took that to Anne's Facebook uh, group and, and then they all made fun of her, and Anne's fans went over to Jenny Trout's on social media and told her uh, that they had taken pictures of her house, which they then post online and doxed her, and uh, one of them said that he was going to make a necklace of her teeth.
0: Uh.
3: They are legitimately frightening. And that kind of- not not every pocket of fandom is that disturbing, but- there is definitely a knock-on effect where there is a very strong pressure to put on smiles and only say positive things about the books. So you kind of have to go digging for any kind of critical grappling with the series, and a lot um, a lot of times I would run into this very disheartening experience where I would find somebody who had done some interesting essays um, and like critical examinations of the book, and then I'd be like, ah, oh, this is interesting. Oh, they kind of just aren't around anymore because there's Either a direct or a kind of freeze-out effect. Um, if you are not very, very glowing about your interaction with the series, and it is depressing. It is depressing.
1: This is not an angle that I usually even think about because I usually fandom is so vastly positive. At least as far as we examine it, I know that it's it's not. There are definitely parts that are not. Mm-hmm. But one thing that hadn't occurred to me now is that you know you can do all you want to censor fanfic from being created, but you can't, for example, constrain academics from examining a literary work from an academic perspective.
3: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly been, there are lots of academic works about the Vampire Chronicles. Um, I think in terms of, like, fandom meta, the stuff that you can actually find online, Anne Rice doesn't have to do anything because she has this fan base that will that will kind of jump down the throats of people who who have, um, you know, these, sorry, these uh, these critical takes. Um, this is particularly bad, I feel like, with characters like Marius, who, um, I, you guys are familiar with the revolutionary girl Utena, yes?
1: A little bit, yeah. I've seen the first season and I'm, I'm working my way through it.
3: Ah, well... I'll say it anyway, for for the prospective listener out there, Um, Mm -hmm. Marius is like, if Akio Otori existed and was basically the same, but the narrative was really hell-bent on convincing you that he's actually a great guy who's a helpful mentor to all these people. By which I mean, he's this, he's like, he, by all rights, should be the antagonist of the early books, because he's like, this ancient Roman who was one of the only characters who was made a vampire as an adult and not, like, 20 years old at most. Um, And he's sitting on this king's ransom of art that he's basically curated over the centuries because he's decided what's worthy of preserving and calling fine art. And Lestat goes to him and he's like, you're the oldest vampire and I want to know all of the secrets about vampiring. And, And Marius is like... Um, yeah, no, society doesn't want us around. It's because Christianity has poisoned the minds of people. So I need you to go out and live a normal human lifetime. But also, if you tell your fledglings anything about anything that I've told you, including sharing any information with you with them about where vampires come from, I will set them on fire from Europe. So you know, no pressure, which then goes on to ruin Lestat's relationship with Louis because the major bone of one of the biggest bone of contentions is that Lestat made Louis saying do this for me and and you know your life will have meaning I have answers that I can give you and then that did not happen. Marius is also explicitly canonically a dude who in 15th century Venice bought a 14-year-old boy from a brothel, sexually groomed him, and then turned him into a vampire at 17 because he could not wait another year for him to finish puberty. It's very upsetting, and these books continually insist that actually he's a great guy who is just super tragic.
0: Okay.
3: (laughs) Yeah. Armand's great, though, uh, said 17-year-old vampire. Armand is freaking great and super interesting. He he got inducted into a cult for 300 years, and... You know, then just kind of, he's kind of a Yandere, if I'm honest. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then in Queen of like the only really, truly amazing part of Queen of the Damned, there's this novella about him meeting the guy who was the interviewer in the first book and the two of them having this relationship that's both horribly dysfunctional and also both of them kind of coming into their own as people where Armand learns to stop being controlling because that's all he's ever known is people controlling his every movement. And that's how you have relationships with other people To I have to do this selfless thing, even though I know it is going to, even though I know it's going to result in me losing my lover. And it's this really complete arc and it's good. And it gives me feelings. And the devil's minion is a superb standalone novella.
1: I was just wondering, cause you'd mentioned the, you were talking about the, the love between the different characters and mm-hmm. it seems like that'd be an interesting topic. To cover in a book about vampires where you have love and we talk about love as people with finite lifespans, uh not truly understanding what it means to love someone when you have to be with them forever. But if you're a vampire, that requirement no longer exists. I can I can guess at some overtones, uh, based on some discussion mm-hmm. about how that might go, but I'm I'm curious if the books get into that a bit more deeply.
3: Yes and no. I mean like
1: I mean I mean in in the parts where they're not obviously dealing with damaging and damaged people.
3: This is definitely a series. Again, I wish there was a fandom that did suck um because this is <laughs> this is a series w- for which polyamory is basically the only sensible option because um Louis and Lestat for example are, you know, obviously very deeply in love and also they crash and burn every couple of decades and they definitely need time away from each other and you know characters break up and they spend time with other people and it should be more interesting in that um, these characters have these long long histories and essentially exist to be petty uh, real housewives of immortality at each other (laughs) but unfortunately a lot of that is is contained to the later books which aren't good (laughs) it um one of the most interesting rela- like one of the most interesting things that the most recent books did was somehow making Lestat and Louis get getting back together terrible at a thing i didn't want while also convincing me that Louis getting back together with Armand who who killed his daughter uh, Claudia while he was in the midst of being a terrible yandere was a good idea and actually they're good for each other now <laughs> Yeah, there's there is a lot of potential, but I feel like it's not necessarily explored well in existing canon because the post editor books, as we'll call them, involve kind of Lestat becoming a becoming more and more full of uh unrestrained power because he is an self-insert character. So like everybody who is introduced meets Lestat and falls in love with him in ten pages. Um <sighs> And also, there's this kind of horrible shift in Tale of the Body Thief, which is the fourth book, where the plot is about, you know, Lestat doesn't want to be a vampire anymore. He's had kind of all these artificial power-ups that have made him really inhuman, and he is scared that he hurts people without because he's losing touch with his ability to empathize. So in the stupidest plot that requires every character to have no common sense at any given time, he meets a dude who offers to switch him into a human body. And then the first thing he does as a human is prove that, no, he's not a terrible person because vampire blood is making him terrible. He's just terrible because the first thing he does as a mortal is go home with a woman who wants to sleep with him, but wants to like hold on because she doesn't have protection and he ignores her screams and has sex with her anyway. And then that book ends with him turning um, turning another character into a vampire while that character says, no, 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 I don't want this. And then a couple pages later comes back and is like, you know what? Actually, I did want this. Thank you. I was just trying to be demure about it, but really I wanted it all along and thank you for knowing that. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to read these books anymore. I I really like Lestat, and I don't want to watch him be a rapist. Mm-hmm. And that really unbalanced power dynamic kind of never goes away and gets worse, because the narrative increasingly tilts itself to excuse everything that he does as a good thing that was a really good idea all along. Oh, really? So, yeah. It's depressing,
1: I find it super fascinating that an author who very clearly has all exhibits all these traits of like a variety of fanfic writers, not to say that that fanfic is is bad, just that like uh, there is bad fanfic. Yeah. um, And as you mentioned, people very obviously go in different in particular directions with a lot of fanfic, but somebody who does who follows that exact same pattern is like, right, it's okay when I do it, but you can't do it. (laughs) 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> pretty much.
3: It's I did it, it, I I feel like I should also mention that the the dude who gets turned into a vampire at the end of this who gets raped into vampiredom is the entire reason the body switching plot exists is because we wanted to take is because Anne wanted to take this old character that that Lestat had a crush on and put him in a young hot body. And the details of this are she takes an old British man who is like the embodiment of colonialism and puts him into the body of a uh, young Anglo-Indian man who gets vampired. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Mm. It's... And and she's always been better about it because David was kind of, you get the feeling, supposed to be a replacement for Louis. Like, he's basically... He, he shares a lot of the same character beats, but is cooler and better. Um, <laughs> like... But then the audience was like, "We because Queen of the Damned ends with Louis and Lestat are back together. They've put all this stuff to rest, and they're going to give it another go. And then Tale of the Body Thief opens with, yeah, uh, Louis Louis screwed off, and he lives in a shack in the woods, and he's covered in dust all the time, and he sucks. (laughs) And then readers were like, we miss Louis. And you can just feel like the grumbling resentment in the subsequent books when she finally gets him back together and louis has this speech where it's like well i don't know why i'm doing this but i guess we have a lot of history together and i'm tired of running away it's like the most lackluster wow bitter thing i've ever seen
1: <laughs> the tale of the buddy thief is that um not knowing much about how the narrative is, is written is that written from like a first-person perspective from lestat's perspective
3: uh, yeah, most of them are written in first-person perspective. Uh, Queen of the Damned goes back and forth between being first-person perspective in Lestat's um, in in Lestat's sections, and then like it's sort of this Dracula-esque uh, um, multiple m- many characters. Everybody gets a chapter uh, kind of set up because it's attempting to give the feeling that this is a grand global conflict, even though it's really not. And it, the the conflict is ultimately resolved with well a bunch of people died but not the people Lestat was interested in boning they got spared <laughs> um, uh, sometimes I think Anne is interfacing with an entirely different fandom than the one I've experienced because there's so there was this horrible book in the 90s called the vampire companion which is this big weighty tome um, that's like a like an index, and it's full of really bad analysis that is just painful to read. Um, and she says in uh, in there that you know she was really happy with what happened um, w- with Armand's character development in Queen of the Damned, which I agree with. I think it was really good. Um, but she was disappointed with how people reacted to it, and that she, um, you know with the implication that people didn't like Armand and Daniel because then they're unceremoniously broken up the next time those characters show up and daniel is shipped off and gets two lines like ever again and i don't know who these fans are i've literally never met anybody who wasn't a huge fan of that ship like it's it's maybe the second most popular in fandom <sighs> who is she talking to
0: did you see one person one time and she was like no no that's it i hate it yeah <laughs>
3: it's it's terrible this character has to go off now and and he's he's completely had a break from reality and will never speak again
1: he's gotta go back to his home planet
3: (laughs) sad because daniel's freaking great he was the only like genuinely modern character who should have been there to be like a snarky commentary on all of these old rich white people because you know he's he definitely died of aids is a thing like and claims he died of alcohol poisoning but. He's been wasting away, had a lot of a lot of unsafe sex, and didn't have any alcohol the day he died. Mm. Boy, died of AIDS.
1: Well, that's that's where you get the classic authorial intent, trumping <laughs> um, pretty much anything anyone else says. I guess
3: if you listen to authorial intent with this books, you'll never have any fun.
0: <laughs> good thing we good thing we have new new criticism. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that, that was the thing, because I, when I was asking about the first person perspective, it's like, oh, I wonder if it's just supposed to be Well, Lestat has been around for a long time. And, you know, it's an unreliable na- narrator and, you know, he just forgot some details or, you know, when he's telling a story, he's like, oh, uh, yeah, I think this happened. I don't really remember. It's not important because it's not about me.
3: You know, it should be a, it, like it should be about that. And those are some of the best parts of the early books. But then in, in later books, she doesn't want to do that because she'll uh, it, it continually throws in phrases like well, I knew this to be true. Like, this was objectively true. These things you've heard described, those were true things about those characters. Like, but that's but, but mm-hmm. that's boring. <laughs> it's boring and bad, actually. <laughs> 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 and, and it doesn't oh, help that the post-editor books are rife with continuity errors. One I point out every time oh, a new geez. book comes out is that, um, so this very important cult that, that Armand was was a part of was called the Children of Darkness. Uh except in the books from like 2012 on where all of a sudden it's the Children of Satan and it <gasps> won't stop staring at me in the face and I hate it.
1: I was I there's no I know that she doesn't have an editor anymore and it's it she doesn't have drafts, but I was hoping against hope that what you were going to tell me was that it is now the Children of Dankness, <laughs> <laughs> Like a typo so obvious. <laughs> It just would have been sure. fantastic. It's like, no, this is how it is, and everybody's just reading this book. It's like, are are you sure? I'm I'm pretty it's, sure this is a mistake. It's just a big group of people that really likes memes, really likes
2: Shrek memes especially. Oh, I mean, no.
3: Ar- Armand is definitely the kind of character who it's kind of universally agreed that in modern era this this dude has one of those will it blend YouTube channels.
1: <laughs> it was absolutely the truth of
3: this character. <laughs> Not that Anne knows what YouTube is, I don't think, because there is one new character who has a podcast, except it's not. It's called a recorded radio broadcast. I
1: wonder if that's just playing to your audience. Like I, One of the things that I wanted to find so badly and comes up occasionally, and even when it's self-reported and biased, it's still interesting to look at, is I was hoping to find some sort of fan survey or demographic information or anything because so I was like, who are these people? Are they young people? Are they old people? Are they predominantly men or women or, or non-binary or, or whatever? I just I just want something. And I couldn't find, I found something on the Vampire Diaries and I'm like, nope, this is not what I'm looking for.
3: Not quite the same. Not quite. Um, In my experience, there are a lot of queer fans, um, especially around my age bracket and a little bit older, uh, in general. Uh, and you get a lot of Um, A lot of experiences I see repeated is that people will be like, oh, I read those when I was a teenager. And they'll be like, you know, in their 30s now. And they're like, I should go back and check those out sometime. And they only read the first three of them. And I'm like, "Mm, well, well, if you go. (laughs) Um, But in participatory fandom, I often overwhelmingly experience it as a fandom full of straight cis women who are really exhausting when anybody who's queer wants to talk about these books. Hmm. Um, and, and rice herself is very much that slash fan. There's this super embarrassing interview from, um, from like tw- I think last year with the daily beast where she talks about being post gender or trans, excuse me, transcending gender. And listen, there's one thing i'll say for these books and it's that when i was 14 it taught me that women definitely could be misogynistic (laughs) (sighs) like all the women in these book uh, most of the women in these books are either like completely shunted off to the side or they're in you know caretaker roles or they're just crying messes who need a man to save them and also anne is afraid of lesbians despite having so many queer male characters in her books Strange. Mm-hmm. It it's,
2: sounds like anybody looking to do a psychological reading of the books to sort of get at the author's own psychology could uh, have a bit of a feel today.
3: Yeah, it's you know, it's one of those things where it's like you know, an author is not necessarily their work, but yeah, with Anne Rice, she takes everything about these books so personally, in my experience, that it's kind of hard not to. I will say that the the movie also twinned off kind of this this other section of fandom that is aggressively bro-y really um there's this yeah so there's this io9 article from like 2009 where that when that comic i mentioned came out where um you know and and, um it, it comes up at one point that like the interviewer is like well would you say that louis and lestat were like you know, same-sex parents. And Anne is like, oh, well, I guess. And then the comments are full with people like with dudes who are like, they weren't gay. I read that book and they definitely weren't gay. And I'm like, you read the wrong book.
1: <laughs> Anne Rice confirms that vampires, Louis and Lestat are a same-sex couple with a child. I'm, I'm guessing this is the article. And I'm it is, that it I is. Think. You found it. <laughs> oh, boy. The comments
3: are truly magical <laughs> and wrong.
1: <laughs> oh, thank God! Top comment is, or the first one that displays is, "Who's the artist behind this adaptation?" That line work looks amazing. Really like the style. I'm like, thank God, that is the first thing I found.
3: <laughs> Incidentally, it is a very beautiful comic. Like it, it's gorgeous and and very manga. It, it's certainly better than the innovation comics, which are. Mm, I know an artist worked hard on them, but they're maybe the ugliest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> think like the really abstract um editions of sandman but all the way through and also what is uh, (laughs) what is continuity (laughs) visually (laughs) oh man yeah there um i am curious did either did did any of your research come up with the musical
1: (laughs) i
0: found the musical
1: I, I I had seen that Anne Rice gave away the theatrical rights, and then I didn't think anything of it until you <laughs> mentioned it right now. Yeah,
0: score by Elton John and Bernie Topin. <laughs> what?
1: Oh
2: man, the honky tonk vampires. All right, here's
0: a
1: question for you for you, Bri. How uh-huh. offended would you be if the only Vampire Chronicles that I consumed was a musical? <laughs> I
3: mean, the musical isn't good. Listen, it's not good. It, it, it very deftly illustrates why you don't want to start with the Vampire Lestat, which has no ending and no beginning. Um, uh, it has one good song. Okay, that, that, That's that, something. Yeah. Um, it only ran like fifty performances across San Francisco and New York, and it had huge rewrites between those two performances, and it still couldn't make it. Bless its heart.
0: Oh, I got. I have a good. Good quote here about the uh, about the musical. Go on. Um, Washington Post critic Peter Marks mused that Lestat's contribution to art and equality is demonstrating that a gay vampire with a two octave range can be just as dull as a straight one. (laughs) 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 Amazing! Wow! (laughs) Oh my god! It must be like findable. It must be out there, but it says there's no there's been no release of the of the recording. They recorded it, but they didn't release it. It's probably on YouTube.
3: It was on YouTube at one point. I happened to, let us say it came to me in a dream right around when it was coming out, because that was okay. That was when I was active in fandom still, right before I kind of had to peace out for mental health reasons for a few months. Um, and then didn't participate in fandom for a decade. Uh, but yeah, it's not. <sighs> Hugh Panaro is trying so hard and it's just not working the the one um the the best parts are definitely the the ones that cross over with the content in interview with the vampire um he has a duet with louis that's kind of actually really sweet at least in one version of it the, the first version they did kind of ends in this 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 very quiet tender intimate moment and i'm like well done you you convinced me that these characters are in love with each other even though their relationship is a hot mess that's more than neil (laughs) jordan managed to do um and and then you get to the the new york rewrite and all of a sudden it's this big bombastic uh, musical number that makes no sense and has no emotional depth whatsoever Mm -hmm. Uh, and i hope that the young woman who played claudia went on to good things because she was really good and and doing her best I don't know what they did to Armand, but it was bad.
0: Oh wow. I'm reading more reviews of it. Sorry.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh no, it's a, it's a rabbit hole, I don't blame you. Uh,
0: ben Brantley uh, of the New York Times Times wrote, joining the ranks of Ambient Lunesta Sonata, another prescription lullaby drugs, is Lestat, the musical sleeping pill. Dare to lick upon Lestat and keep your eyelids from going heavier and heavier and heavier.
2: <laughs>
0: oh <my God>. <laughs> <laughs> Broadway reviewers are savage. <laughs> this is this is why
1: Anne Rice does not like reviewers. They like look, these these people <laughs> making the musical are just trying really hard and you just can't say bad things about them. I mean No. Nope. Look, I don't I don't know how all
3: of the performances went, but the one that came to me in a dream—I was uh, the secondhand embarrassment I had for those actors and all of their flubbed jokes and the dead oh. silence that met them—did make Oof. me want to die. And you know what? You know what is the strange thing about all of these uh, mostly male prominent critics who, uh, who, who—you know—couldn't be easily intimidated. I don't recall her raising a fuss against them in the same way that she did for the she has done for a lot of the marginalized people who've had things to say even mildly critically about her books. It is weird how that happens.
0: That's that is strange.
3: I feel like occasionally I run up against this sort of implicit question that like, why are you still reading these books? Because everything has gone downhill so quickly and you only, Mm -hmm. but, but I mean, partly it's because I genuinely love those early ones. I, my favorite thing to do is to badger my friends to read them and then ask me to tag, uh, ask them to tag me in the live blog, which if any of you out there are listening, read these books, buy them from used bookstores, and tag me in your live blog. Um, but Anne Rice is so delete-happy that I kind of, e- even though I'm generally not a person who gets satisfaction out of curatorial fandom, I kind of feel somebody needs to, who has been around mm. and watched all of this go down. <laughs> like, s- somebody has to remember all of this, because I, I have definitely seen trends with newer fans to kind of paint Anne as, like, this sort of dotty old lady. Oh, gosh, isn't it cute how in her published books she charges money for, she has continuity errors, and she, she just doesn't understand how fan fiction works. And I'm like, no, she's a genuinely mean and dangerous person who has ruined people's lives and never, to my knowledge, displayed any kind of remorse for it.
1: It's interesting, too, because normally when I think of curatorial fandom, I think of people like, oh, this is Gundam RX 07-8. And it's like, you can tell because of this. And I'm like, on the one hand, that's useful for some folks. But I don't often think of it as in terms of like, oh, well, you know, I've been collecting all these pamphlets from these conventions so that one day if we ever wanted to see historically what this was like, we have a pretty good idea. Or in this particular case, it's like, oh, there's actually a whole different side of this fandom of this community that is not transparent unless you're deep into it.
3: Yeah, my my wife, Dorothy, who I actually met via Vampire Chronicles fandom, so it's yet another reason I can't get away Whoa. from these books. <laughs> um, she she uh, actually is an academic who studies fandom and is really smart hmm. and funny and also the best. Um, but yeah, she, she collects zines and studies uh, these kinds Ooh. of fandom interactions because it's it's a culture, it, and I think it's one that we are mm-hmm. only just beginning to realize is something that needs historical documentation because the internet is so new and exciting and ephemeral that nobody thought to, to to chart how those kinds of social interactions have happened.
1: Hey, I'm not trying to cut anybody off, but that is the most perfect segue that I am ever going to get on this show. Smile at- The spotlight for this week is the Organization for Transformative Works. Why is that important? Well, they do a lot of really cool things, which we've definitely brought up on this podcast before. For example, uh, they run Archive of Our Own. They run FanLore. They also run a peer-reviewed academic journal called uh, Transformative Works and Cultures. do a bunch of other things. But one thing that Vry reminded me of is that they also do a lot of legal advocacy. Uh, This quote from their website. Uh, the organization for transformative works believes that fan works are creative and transformative core fair uses and will therefore be proactive in protecting and defending fan works from commercial exploitation and legal challenge. This help will not be limited to those fans or projects directly connected with the organization for transformative works. And they do a bunch of stuff in that arena. Like um, they have obtained an exemption to the U S uh, digital millennium copyright act that permits makers of non-commercial remix the circumvent copyright protections on Blu-rays, DVDs, and things like that. Um, they filed briefs regarding publicity laws and fair use and online freedom of expression and opposing trademark registrations that would claim private ownership of different elements of different fandoms. So, um, they are a really cool organization. And if you want to help them out, you can go to transformativeworks.org donate. Or better yet, um, I think if you donate over a certain amount or if you go through the website and donate directly to them, you can actually join the organization for transformative works and participate in ways like helping to elect directors or potentially volunteer with them.
3: Yeah. Um, a lot of what I've quoted today is because it, it is still preserved because it was preserved by fan lore. Uh, I think that might be one of the most important wikis that we have. Uh, please support them and give them money.
1: There are so many like rabbit holes that I'm like, oh, I'll do this research for this episode. And then I'm like, ooh, I should come back to this. Ooh, I should come back to this.
0: This is, um, I don't know if we could have done this podcast without fan lore, honestly.
1: We reference Archive of Our Own and fan lore pretty much every single episode. And that is the only, the only spotlight I have for this week.
3: Yeah, please don't give Anne Rice your money. Um, if, if I have to to read these and tag me in your live vlog, go to the used bookstore. There's always an Anne Rice section. It's there.
0: Speaking as a person who works in a used bookstore, it's true. <laughs> it's like, is there something like an
1: anti-spotlight, something that throws shade and then I just stop?
3: <laughs> it's been everything I've said for the past hour.
0: <laughs> Fry, where can people find you on the internet?
3: Uh, I work all over the place. I am an editor and contributor at Anime Feminist. Uh, The easiest way to find all the places I've freelanced is to go to my Twitter, at WriterVry, and check my pinned thread, um, which lists all the outlets that I've written for. Uh, If you enjoyed hearing me talk about this stuff, um, I also co-host another podcast, which you can find on Twitter, at TrashPod. Sometimes we talk about cult movies. Sometimes uh, Dorothy and I talk about books that you have heard of but didn't read, including... We've got a couple episodes on Vampire Chronicles ones, so if you want to hear more <laughs> angry embittered fans oh. it, dissecting why the later books don't work, good news Ooh. And I have a patreon patreoncom vrikeiser Yay thank you thank you so much for having me on you guys by the way. Uh, this has been really fun and I, I w- would would do again to speak presumptively.
0: <laughs> oh, our pleasure. Uh, yeah. I learned a lot mm-hmm. but if you've uh, made your way. Through trash pod and you still want to hear more you can always listen to more Fanthropological uh, which is over at fanthropological.com st- steaming towards a uh, hundred episodes uh, different uh, each one covering a different fandom if there's a topic you like you'd like to hear us cover on the show please email us Nick at com and we will uh, we will uh, get to it we'd love to see we'd love to hear what 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 we haven't covered that people would like to hear us cover the three of us are the nixcast cast we can be found Everyone, everywhere on the internet at the Knicks cast Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. What's that one? Instagram, Facebook, YouTube. And it's the most wonderful time of the year. It's Doctor Who time. And uh, the Knicks cast has you covered because we are reviewing uh, Series 11 of Doctor Who as Jody whitker takes the mantle of the Doctor. And that can be found over at whoinreview.com with a rotating cast of about six hosts, which we will be covering all 10 episodes. If
2: you are listening to this podcast, thank you very much for listening um but you can also uh watch us record these episodes live at twitch.tv slash the next although we do invite your participation in the chat uh via twitter if all that social media stuff but especially in the chat well we are recording these episodes live because that's where you can go down and oh, tell us your plans for voting you could uh Ask us questions. You could, you know, just say, uh, hey, play Fortnite. We probably won't. In fact, we definitely won't.
0: But uh, But You you can definitely ask.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because watching this live at twitch.tv slash Linuxcast is where you want to go for that audience participation. And the most important part of audience participation in this show is the
1: famous last words that's right we made it there somehow i don't know but we get there every time thankfully that's right it's the famous last words which is the part of the show where we come up with our famous last words about next week's topic before we've done any research so we make some statement or some question about the fandom before we we know anything potentially I mean, next week, it looks exactly like that, because next week, we are going to be talking about fans of pinball. So, I I know there's some Space Cadet pinball, and I've played some pinball games in my day, but honestly, I have no idea where this is going. And it's everybody's opportunity to try to figure out what we want to know for next episode. <laughs> whoever has an idea can go first because I have no idea. Actually, you know what? I lied because I briefly looked at Wikipedia and I saw one word and I know one thing that I want to ask. And that is why has there been a revival of pinball in the last decade?
3: Yeah, I guess my, my question is kind of like that is, um, I, I live in a hipster, a uh, very hipster town. So, uh, how did the connection of like, pinball essentially pinball places where that are, that are also bars how did that connection get started because it's definitely a thing now
2: what i'm curious about is how do these pinball fans which predominantly seem to be fans of like stand-up tables feel about digital pinball
1: is it okay is it not real pinball Knowing fandom, the answer to that question is someone definitely (laughs) says yes to that.
0: Is there another uh, pop culture touchstone that pinball fans have apart from? Tell me. Was there a Fonz of pinball? You have to write that second one down, but uh, I'm just kind of expanding.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I know, but the answer is there
0: there was that deaf,
1: dumb, blind kid.
0: He sure played a mean pinball. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> all right but it's i've got it they're all recorded so we're stuck with them <laughs> no changes no take backsies
0: well the only thing that remains to do is uh Varys, thank you once again for joining us it was an absolute pleasure and we literally could not have done it without you
3: thanks so much for having me i had a really great time
0: and uh, if you would like to submit a new ending phrase for me to say as we end phanthropological please send them to g right. at the next um, if I get some good ones, I'll read them all out on the air and they'll, they'll figure out, uh, which one to pick, but until that time and until next time, we'll talk to you next time. Bye everybody. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's a good That's a bring in.
1: I mean, I could edit around it, but it's oh. going to be real messy.
3: <laughs> no, no, you do the thing.
2: Okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll slip my question in later.
1: Oh, uh, you sneaky. Cool. Okay. <laughs> well, it sounds like this is a perfect time to bring up this week's spotlight. I was thinking about it beforehand. I was like, you know, it'd be a good spotlight voting day. If you're in America, you could vote. But by the time this episode is released, uh, you will already have voted. So I hope that America is in a better place uh, than... It is now, but
3: please vote. All of us trans people are terrified.
1: Oh, yeah. News please today vote. or yesterday. Very bad. Um, man, I took that perfect segue and ran it right off the tracks. <clears throat> <gasps> <laughs> <laughs>